The book of Mark chronicles the last three years of Jesus here on earth. They were pretty intense years, to say the least. Since meeting John the Baptist, he was faced with temptations in the desert, performed miracles, healed people, gained followers, was transfigured and died a criminal's death, only to be raised from the dead. Why should all this matter to you and me? Join us for The Last Three. Good evening, church. How's everybody doing tonight? Amen. Praise God. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossbridge Church and grateful that you have come to worship with us here in the room. And for those of you online, welcome as always. We uh, value you, we treasure you, but we always want to say that there's nothing like being in the room. Amen? Amen? Amen. Well, hey, tonight we are beginning episode four of our series, The Last Three, as we're moving through the book of Mark looking at the last three years of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark, the book of Mark, chronicles those last three years. We're going to be going all the way up until Easter. And preparing for this evening wasn't only about preparing in the Word, but it was also about thinking, what sweater am I going to wear? You know, oh, thank you. Hey, thank you. But here's why, not because of that, but I'll take it. But because... Sweater weather in Miami is very rare. So when it's cold, I don't know if you're like me. When it's cold in Miami, you're like, what do I wear? I don't have many days, you know. So you have several sweaters or however. You're like, I'm only going to get to pick like three times the whole year. So I got to pick wisely. And I I change. Whenever tomorrow's going to be cold, totally different sweater. Because sweater weather in Miami, you got to choose wisely. You only get a few moments to enjoy what the rest of the country enjoys or suffers through for a large part of the year. So that was part of the preparation, but another part of the preparation was diving here into Mark chapter 4. We're moving through this book actually quite fast. It seems like we're going to be in it for a long time, as we said, we're going all the way until Easter, which is in April. But it's actually pretty quick because there are so many things that happen in Jesus' last three years of life on this earth. Now, there's so many things that he teaches, so many miracles that he performs and healings. And so we have to move quite quickly. Uh, If we're going to actually spend time in each thing, it would take over a year easily just to move through this gospel, which is the shortest one. And so let me bring you up to speed where we are tonight. As um, I mentioned, we're in Mark chapter, chapter 4, verse 30 through 32. So if you have your Bible with you, you could turn there now, Mark 4, chapter 30, or verse 30 through 32. That's the parable of the mustard seed. And if you have the app, as Daniel, thank you, Daniel, so eloquently encouraged you and exhorted you to download it, uh, open that up or download it, Crossbridge Brickle, in your app store. Click on the notes icon, and you can go through it. The reason we encourage you to do that is because we want you to participate. So there's a lot of extra notes there as well, so you can engage in God's word with me together. This is something we do in community. This is not about uh, just one person's perspective or thoughts. This is God working through his word, through us together as his people. So let's participate together in that. So here's what's taking place. Last week we left off where Jesus has begun the public ministry of healing 
And he's healed several people. He's also cast out demons and evil spirits from people. He has healed a, a child who was terminally ill. He has healed a man with leprosy. And as we focused on last week, he healed uh, a paralyzed man that four friends brought and dropped him through the roof. And he healed him not only of his physical ailment, but also of his greatest ailment, his sin. Now, Jesus is amassing a following. And at the moment, he has four disciples. He calls, as we see in Mark chapter 3, the next disciple, which is Matthew. Now, Matthew is a tax collector, which is quite scandalous because tax collectors were hated by the Jewish community. Tax collectors were viewed as traitors to their own people because they were Jews who aligned with the Roman Empire to extort their own people for wealth, for the empire that has oppressed and enslaved God's people. And so... Matthew has been called to be a tax collector, and this only further angers the religious establishment, the Pharisees, and they're now viewing Jesus as a threat, a threat to power, a threat to their religion, a threat to their communities, and so they look to discredit him time and time again. And it only gets worse in Matthew chapter, or Mark, Mark chapter 3, where Jesus begins to teach about fasting and the Sabbath, and he teaches about the intent of the Sabbath, the heart behind the command to keep the Sabbath holy. It's a day of refreshment, it's a day of rest, it's a day of worship, it's a day of good. And God has set that forth. But it's not a day of rules. You see, the religious establishment has added all of these extra biblical rules on top of so many things, including the Sabbath, so that nobody will break the rule of keeping the Sabbath holy. So Jesus with his followers, his disciples, five of them at this moment, and also other people that are following him, he, he encourages them to take some grain from a field, which was breaking the Sabbath. He then heals a man who has a withered or a, a kind of a disabled, broken hand on the Sabbath, which also was not allowed. So now the religious establishment is really furious with Jesus. It says that they send some of the key leaders down from Jerusalem to where Jesus is in the region of the Sea of Galilee to essentially discredit his ministry. They come in and they begin to share this claim that Jesus is possessed by the devil. And Jesus combats this with logic. He said, you have seen me cast demons and devils out of people. How can the devil cast out the devil? And so they fail at discrediting his ministry. And so now, as you can imagine, in this region, and it's spreading all the way to Jerusalem, people are hearing about Jesus, and they want to know what he's going to say and what he's going to do. And Jesus then gathers the entire 12 disciples, and he begins to teach in Mark chapter 4. And he teaches through parables. Now, parables are very interesting. It's a very interesting way of teaching. And I want to give you a little uh, kind of background and understanding of what a parable is, because I think it's going to help you dive in with me in Mark chapter 4, verse 30 through 32, the parable of the mustard seed. So there's several parables that Jesus teaches on in Mark 4. We're going to focus on just one. But let me tell you what a parable is. A parable is not simply just an illustration that gives you knowledge or wisdom that is divine or heavenly. Oftentimes we think a parable is some type of divine or heavenly or good knowledge that's given through a story or some type of illustration. It's much more than that. And it's also difficult to, uh, to really define because there's so many different types of parables. 
But let me give you kind of the overarching understanding of what a parable is most of the time when you see it in Scripture. And it, this applies to the parable this evening. So first off, a parable uh, communicates indirectly. So here's what that means. Direct communication is when I very clearly give you facts and details directly to you so you can sort through it and process how you feel about what I'm sharing. It's very direct and to the point. Indirect communication, which is what parables do, they want to get around your defenses, your, pre, your presuppositions. So it's almost like when a parable is being taught, you don't actually know what is the purpose or the meaning of what is being shared so that it can go in the back window of your mind and all of a sudden you're wrestling with something you didn't know that you were going to wrestle with in the first place. It wants to get around your defenses and your presuppositions. So it uses illustrations and things that you can relate to so that your guard is down. Because when a parable communicates, it also wants to challenge your presuppositions and your preconceptions. It wants you to kind of be, there's a rub that happens in your mind when what the parable actually teaches comes to the forefront. It's bringing something fresh. And it is, uh, parables, what they are in their nature, is a lens to the truth. So whatever the parable is focused on is a lens to the truth, which leads to one of the last aspects of a parable, is that as it comes in behind your, de your defenses and behind your pre preconceptions and presuppositions, and now it's challenging what you hold to be true, and it's a lens to what is true, giving you something fresh and new, it wants to correct your vision. It wants to correct you and realign you to what is actually good, what is actually true. And so you could kind of boil down most parables to doing three things, three words. Awaken, stimulate, and call to action. This is what parables want. They want to awaken you to something. They want to stimulate your mind and your heart and your soul. And then they want to call you to action. It's corrective. So here our passage tonight, Mark 4, does these three things. Here's God's word to us, Mark 4, verse 30 through 32. It says this. And he said, that's Jesus, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nest in its shade. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for the audience that Jesus is teaching to, this would have been very relatable. It would have gone right around their defenses and preconceptions and right into the back window of their mind because a mustard seed was a, a, a plant or a seed that was used by most people. It's very common in the Palestinian region and all throughout the Roman Empire. People would use it in their gardens. And so it was very... It's like mango trees in Miami. We relate with it. We know about it. So they would have connected right away with this seed, with this plant. And a mustard seed is very interesting because it's this tiny, minuscule seed that when planted, it has this shocking growth. It goes from very small to quite large, up to 10 to 20 feet, the plant when it's fully grown. And it germinates for only about five days. 
So it only takes about five days for this little mustard seed to start growing and, and quite rapidly. And so as Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God compared to a mustard seed, this would have been very relatable as people are listening and they're trying to understand what is he actually saying. Now, I want to show you two things he's not saying, and that's important. The first thing is that it says in the passage that the mustard seed is the smallest of the seeds and the largest of the plants in the garden. Jesus is not giving a science lesson here. He's not actually saying, go look it up. The mustard seed is, in fact, the smallest seed in the world. That's not the point of what he's saying, especially when you look at the original language in Greek. He's talking about how small it is, not as whether or not it's actually the smallest in the world. And he's also not saying that it is always the largest plant in the garden. If you put a sycamore tree in your garden, that will be the largest tree in the garden. So it's not about whether or not it's the largest or the smallest, and it's also not about whether or not it's just one seed. Sometimes we may read this passage and think that Jesus is talking about just one seed. See, they would have understood that when you sow seeds, you throw many of them. So it's not about one seed or multiple seeds. It's not about whether or not scientifically it's the smallest or the largest in the garden. What it is focused on is the nature of the seed, that it has very small beginnings. It's viewed as, you know, minuscule and maybe overlooked and insignificant. This small little seed, you would never think that anything grand would come of this. And yet, it is shockingly large when it's done growing. That is the focus. Small beginnings, but a large end. This is what Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like. Small beginnings, large end. So let's tear that apart a little bit. The first thing he says here is that the kingdom of God has small beginnings and large ends. That's the focus. And so he wants to awaken you to the nature of the kingdom, to awaken you to the nature of the king kingdom. What are its characteristics? I just told you, small beginnings, large ends. Now think about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God had a relatively small germination period, the life of Jesus. Relatively small in the grand scheme of things. And what we read about the kingdom of God in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all throughout the New Testament is that the kingdom of God is at hand, but not yet. Jesus says this, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's ushering in the kingdom of God. It is here, but it's not fully here, meaning it's still growing. It is not fully revealed as the kingdom of God is still putting out branches and it's still growing, like a mustard seed that continues to grow in the garden. And history testifies to this fact Small beginnings, large end. Think about what takes place. Jesus' life is a short 33 years. Just give or take, you know, a couple months or a year there. 33 years as Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God, particularly in the last three years of his life. As he is in this public ministry preaching and teaching and healing. And yet, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, what happens? Shocking growth. Incredible development. Now Jesus is amassing a following and people are coming to faith in a small overlooked region of the world. Israel. And then when Jesus ascends, Peter preaches at, the, at Pentecost right after this and 3,000 people come to faith. And within the first few centuries of the development of the church, 
Christianity overtakes one of the most powerful and largest empires in the world. And the, one of the largest and most powerful empires history has ever known, the Roman Empire. To where it becomes the religion of the empire just a few centuries. And this is shocking because around 70 AD, Nero the emperor sees such a threat with Christianity. This is just about 40 years after Jesus has died and risen and ascended. That he starts to kill Christians and burn them at the stake. Unbelievable persecution but unbelievable growth. To the point to where we are today. Some 2,000 years later and 30% of the world identifies as Christian. Think about the beginnings of that. Shocking, small, one man, 12 disciples in this overlooked region of the world to now 2.5 billion people all over the world. Shocking growth, like a mustard seed. But those are facts observed, but we have to dive a little bit deeper to really see what Jesus' intention here. When he speaks about not just the nature of the kingdom, of what it will do and what history has proven to be a fact, small beginnings, large end, and it's still growing. But also, Jesus wants us to see the true nature of the kingdom of God. There's such an interesting detail in this parable, and I wonder if if it jumped into your mind and you wondered what the purpose of it is. Look at verse 32 with me again. It says this, Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. What an interesting detail. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That's the focus. It's a mustard seed, small beginnings, large ends. But then there's this interesting detail that Jesus adds at the end that it grows so that birds can come and find a home, make a shelter, and have shade or protection and comfort from the heat of the sun. Why is Jesus sharing that? Now, there's a couple things we notice here. First off, Jesus does not have in mind one bird or one type of bird. He doesn't say the sparrows. He's speaking about birds, plural, all types of birds, varieties of birds. Any bird that wants to come to the mustard seed can go. And we'll find shelter and shade and comfort and protection in its branches. Why does Jesus share this? Well, the kingdom of God is not a place that invites the actual birds. Though one day in the new heavens and new earth, there will be beautiful birds. But Jesus is speaking about birds because he's comparing that to the invitation of people. All people, all types of people are welcome to the kingdom of God to find what? A home, shelter, shade, comfort, protection. Not just one type. Now this is shocking. Why? Because God's people in Israel viewed themselves as the people of God. We are the people of God, they felt. And they restricted other people based upon their religious practices, based upon their ethnicity, based upon how how, how moral they viewed them to be. They would restrict them from God, from the temple, from different places, from the community. And what is Jesus doing? He's tearing down all of these walls because the kingdom of God is not tribal. It's not tribal. The kingdom of God is not one culture. It is not one people group. It is not one style of person. It is none of that. The kingdom of God is for all the birds. It is for everyone. 
And history testifies to that too. Christianity is not found in just one country. It's in every country. Every type of person. You see, Jesus is tearing down every religious, ethnic, racial, and social, and moral wall that we want to build up to keep people out. The kingdom of God welcomes everybody, and it's not tribal. Which means, if you were raised under a different faith, or you are struggling thinking about a different faith, the kingdom of God welcomes you to find a home, to find shelter, to find comfort and protection. If you were raised in a different culture, the kingdom of God welcomes you. If you struggle with certain sins and you feel like that bars you from the kingdom of God, the answer is no, it does not. All people with all struggles and all sin, all types and varieties are welcome to the kingdom of God to find shade and shelter, a home and protection and comfort. You see, Jesus is looking to awaken us to the nature of the kingdom. It's not just the fact that it started small and it becomes large and it's still growing to this day. It's also intrinsically a place that is inclusive. You see, none of us in this room are entitled to the kingdom of God. We all arrive walking with a limp. And we are invited in. And here's the thing. The kingdom of God to find shelter and shade and comfort and protection and a home in God's kingdom only requires one thing. One word. You know what that word is? Jesus. One word. It's not, okay, okay, how am I going to perform for God? What am I going to show him? What am I going to do? How do I get everything right so that God will invite me into his home where I can find protection and comfort? No, 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 no. One word, Jesus. There's this this question that I I heard when I was a young child. I didn't understand it until I got older. But it's this question, and I think it's a great one. If you were to stand before God today and, you, and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Now, when you hear that question, you may think, okay, I got to get the right answer here. What is theologically correct? Um, how, do I, you know, how do I say the right way? Let me say, okay. Or maybe you think, let me, let me think about how I've lived my life. So let me kind of tell God the things that I've done. I know God, I was like this, but look what I'm doing now. And yet... Here is the response. Why, if you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my kingdom? The answer is, the man in the middle cross invited me to come. The man in the middle cross invited me to come. Jesus is inviting all people to come. Doesn't matter what your background is, your struggle, your pain, your issue, your culture, nothing. It doesn't matter. All people are invited. Jesus is inviting you to come to the kingdom. And he wants to awaken us to the nature and the characteristics of the kingdom of God. But not only that, he also wants to stimulate our understanding of him. To stimulate understanding of Jesus. Who he really is. See, there's another belief that he's combating here. See, the Jews had this this preconception of who the Messiah would be. Remember, parables go around your defenses and challenge your preconceptions. They believed the Messiah was going to come as a dominating force, was going to be large in stature, physically impressive, and the kingdom would be physically impressive like the temple they built in Jerusalem. 
This was going to be a great king, and everyone would see it. And what this king would do is he would cast out all the nations, and he would dominate all the nations that have enslaved God's people for hundreds of years, including in this time they would have viewed that as the Romans. He would have cast them out and established this kingdom greater than all the other kingdoms, and all these other kingdoms that had oppressed God's people would one day bow to God's people. This is how they viewed the Messiah, how he would arrive and what he would be like. And Jesus wants us to look at him, his life. Remember, he is the Messiah, the Son of God. This is what he is sharing and declaring in his public ministry. And what is his life like? How did it start? He's born under the radar, small, to insignificant, overlooked parents, poor family, Later in a manger, not even, his parents aren't even able to find a place for him to be born in a, a proper shelter. And yet from there, it kind of goes quiet for about 30 years. It's this germination period. We don't read much or know much about what takes place from Jesus' birth and to his public ministry when he's about 30 but then when Jesus is baptized, as we saw a few weeks ago, and he goes into the, the wilderness to be tempted, and then he comes back and begins to gather disciples and begins to preach and to teach and to heal, what happens? Explosive growth. Followers grow. Enemies grow. Influence grows. All of this begins to grow in his life over just a, a few short three years culminating in his death and burial because he becomes such a threat that the religious establishment puts him to death. Now, how was this viewed by the audience here that's receiving this parable by the Jewish people? Jesus was a failure. Even his disciples thought that. That's why they ran away and hid. They could not, they didn't have a category for a Messiah that would give his life away. Death was a failure. Maybe he wasn't what we thought. And yet we know his death was not a failure. It was not small. It was not insignificant. Death was a triumph. His death was a triumph over sin and shame and guilt and the evil one himself. And that is validated because three days later, Jesus comes forth from the dead, alive, and validates the triumph of his death and what he has accomplished. And when Jesus is resurrected, do you remember where, he's, where he comes forth from the grave? In a garden. Remember, Mary is, is so sad. She thinks someone stole the body of Jesus, and she mistakes Jesus for a gardener. What does Jesus say the kingdom of God is like here? As he's comparing it. It's a mustard seed. It starts small, insignificant, overlooked, but explosive growth. Beautiful, triumphal growth. And it's the largest of the plants in the garden. See, what is Jesus sharing? Not only to awaken us to the understanding and the nature of the kingdom, but to stimulate our understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is the mustard seed. He's the mustard seed. And he's challenging not only the people that are there that he's speaking to, but us on who he is and how he operates and what he did and what he promises. See, he was not what they expected. He was not what they viewed a Messiah to be like, and yet he was the Messiah. He was a mustard seed. And that is because God works 
upside down. God works upside down all the time. You see, when we look into who God is and how he works and Jesus being God in the flesh, how does he work? What does he show? Death is a triumph. He says that in his kingdom, the last shall be first. The least are the greatest. The apostle Paul speaks about the kingdom of God and God's people. And he says that God will use the weak of the world to shame the strong. That power is made perfect in what? Weakness. God works upside down down time and time again. And the Apostle Paul says something in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 that's always stuck with me. And he says this, that you are to put on the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. Meaning the way that Christ thinks and the nature of God and his kingdom and what God views as wisdom and as wise and as true, you're to put that on. Remember, God works upside down. You're to have upside-down thinking in comparison to the world. And oftentimes you'll be judged for having thinking that looks like foolishness. But the Apostle Paul says that the foolishness of the world is not foolishness at all. You see, you're to have upside-down thinking to not think that just because something is small means it's insignificant. Or just because something is large does not mean it's powerful. Upside-down thinking. You know, one of the things I was thinking through this week is how parables are, are seeking to correct our vision and change how we think and what we focus on. And I don't know if you've ever done this before, but have you ever taken a, a glass and tried to look through it like this? Yeah, it, it, you can't really do it, right? Also, this sent me down a rabbit hole of how are glasses made, like the ones that some of you wear. Shocking. They bend them and they sculpt them. I was like, I don't know, how does it work? Because if you just had this, like the bottom of a drinking glass, to look through, I mean, you can't see anything. All the proportions are off. It's really hard to make out what is what. When you try to focus on something, it pulls it apart and enlarges certain aspects of it. And what it does, if you had like glasses that they didn't make really fancy so you could see perfectly, but it was just the bottom of a drinking glass, imagine that. Just picture yourself with two bottoms of drinking glass on your eyes and looking around. It would be very difficult to see what is true and what is good, especially if something is small. If you drop something of significance on the floor like a ring and you had the drinking glass eyes, it would be hard to see it because everything else would be kind of pulled apart and different things that are large would be enlarged even to a greater degree. But if you drop something larger like a pillow or something, you would see it very clearly because though the proportions would be weird, it's so large that you can make out that that's what you're looking for and grab it. See, the reason I tell you this is because I think many of us, this is how we look at the world. We look through drinking glass goggles. We struggle to see things that are small. And so because we struggle to see things that are small, we view things that are as small as insignificant, as not as important as the large things in life. We look at large things and physically impressive things and things that have a lot of clout and a lot of following and a lot of the world is saying this is really valuable and we see it so large and so good in that we equate it with greatness. And yet we're to have the mind of Christ which is upside down. It's the exact opposite oftentimes. And this leads us to the call to action. 
See, the call to action for us is to have a mustard seed mind. A mustard seed mind. Listen, what that means is to refocus, take off the drinking glass goggles and see things the way that God calls you to see them. See things for what they are. Have his mind, the mind of Christ that doesn't view something small as insignificant or something large as great just because it's large. And what that means is that you should not judge God's goodness in your life because he's not meeting your expectations or your preconceptions of what is good. See, having the mind of Christ, having a mustard seed mind, means looking for goodness in the unexpected. In the unexpected places. Not just in the things that are physically impressive and the things that are large that you think will finally satisfy you and will bring great benefit and power to your life, but in the small things. I want to ask you a question. How many times have you prayed to God requesting small things? Small prayers. Many of us, when we pray to God, we pray for large things. Oftentimes, the the focus of what we're asking God for and we believe that we need in our life is large. Because we equate large things with significance. They may be, but they may also not be at all. And sometimes what God wants to teach us is that he wants to do something in us which is better than what he could give to us. You see, sometimes when we're praying these large things and we're wondering, God, why aren't you giving me this? Why aren't you answering this prayer? Why aren't you meeting my expectations? It's because God is wanting to teach something in you, to train something in you. He's bringing you through a period of germination. He wants to prepare you for what he will do in the future. That it's not all about just God giving you large things because in fact the large thing he gives you could be unhelpful and hurtful. The mind of Christ causes you to see, God, I want to see you in the small things. I actually want to pray for small things. You see, when you put on the mind of Christ, you have to think differently. And I wrote a few things down that I've... I'm praying for myself to start thinking, and I want to encourage you to think as well. Here's one of them. God, I'm not going to judge your goodness by my perception of significance. I'm not going to judge, God, whether or not you're good if you're meeting my perception of what is significant. I know that you work upside down, God, and I'm going to trust in that. I wrote this too. I trust I may be in a period of germination. And that's good for me. It's good for me to wait. It's good for me to not have all of the things that I need or all of the things I believe I need or all of the recognition that I desire or all of the success that I think needs to be mine. It's good for me to wait, God. I know that you want to do something in me before you want to do something around me or even through me. I trust that I'm in a period of germination and that's good. I also wrote this, God, don't allow me to equate size with significance. Listen, I want to say that I believe you're like me because it's so easy to equate size with significance. The size of your bank account, the size of your friend group, the size of the title you receive, the size of your following on social media, the size of the recognition that you get, we're always equate more with better More eyes, more people, more clout, more praise, more money, 
more time, whatever it may be, more comfort, more leisure, more vacations. We always equate large things with significance. God, don't allow me to equate size with significance. Because it's not always true. Oftentimes, we see the most significant, something that is small, overlooked, but we struggle to see it. And Jesus wants to refocus us to see things that are small, to even pray small prayers. I want to encourage you to do that this week. To look in your life and pray to God and ask for something small. Something that you want God to do in you. Something that you want God to teach you. Something small. And trust Him in the small things. Because here's what I want you to hear. The kingdom of God is a place for all people. It invites everybody. It's not tribal. And Jesus' life started in, with small beginnings and had a large triumphal end on the cross and His resurrection. And even now as He reigns as King over the universe. And when you put on the mind of Christ and you have this mustard seed mind, it not only helps you refocus how you live now and how you pray now and how you engage in your life now, not equating size with significance, but also it helps you understand who you are. You may feel insignificant. You may feel overlooked. You may feel small. But if you are in Christ, when you put on the mustard seed mind, you know what your end is, and it is large. It is triumphal. It is the kingdom of God eternally set where you get to enjoy God and his people for all eternity. There is nothing greater. Your end is victory. Hold on to that when you feel small, when you feel overlooked and insignificant because you are not. Jesus went to the cross and triumphed over death and sin and shame for you so that you never have to feel small because your end is large and you are united with your king who reigns over the universe and is the most significant one. Amen?